Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, sacré bleu, il est fort sans pied. Il utilise ses mains. Sans pied? Un honte, un disgrace. Oh, what's this? He's thrown it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing, a great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. Tuesday afternoon, and you know what that means. It is Apocalypse Sports Radio, lucky number seven on the episode count. I'm Shane Ryan, and boy howdy. Do we have a good show for you today? Now, if you know me, you know it takes a lot for me to say boy howdy. I treat those words as something precious. Do not hand them out lightly. I believe the last time I said it was for the Iraq War, the first one. Uh, So you can see it's a rare thing. But in this case, I feel it's justified. What do we got for you today? Well, we got Spike's Takes, everyone's favorite feature. We've got a chat about the state of world soccer with Noah Davis. Uh, We're going to talk Germany, England, even America. It's a real World War II uh, reunion. And finally, one last chat about The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan doc with Brandon Gardner. And we'll probably throw some trivia into the mix as well. So if you're listening for the first time, this is all a part of the Apocalypse Sports Network, where for $3 a month, you can get five blog posts each week and two podcasts, some of them variety shows like this one, and some longer interviews with the likes of, oh, for example, Will Leach, Drew McGarry, Tim Layden, and that's just so far. So if you're interested in that, please subscribe at patreon.com slash apocalypse sports, or if you're interested, check out some of the free blogs at apocalypsesports.net. You may get addicted. Who knows? All right. I think we're ready. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. Folks, let's do this thing. Segment break. All right, you know him. You probably don't love him, but he spends so much money and pays me so much money that I'm obliged to have him on once each week uh, to give a sports take. So, Spike Friedman, welcome back. Honor, privilege, Shane. Thank you so much. My yacht just pulled up right off the island nation of Madagascar. Oh, wow. So you've covered a ton of distance in the last week. I, you know, look, when you're on a yacht as powerful as mine, distance is more of an illusion than anything else, okay. you know? yeah. I mean, it's a big yacht. It's big enough to have its own quarantine station for my more cough-addicted crew members. Uh, so I'm going to be dropping them here in Madagascar. I figured <laughs> go to the place with the fewest current infections because they can handle the burden more. You know, I'm I'm really a humanitarian at heart. So you're dropping off your COVID-infected crew members at a... I don't know what they have. They just like to cough, and I don't care for it. So you're going to drop them off. Are you going to get them later, or what happens to them? I don't know. What do you mean, what happens to them? So out, out of sight, out of mind. When you drop them off, that's it. Yeah, they're on contracts that are day-to-day. Every day I make every one of my crew members sign a new contract. <laughs> All right. That's uh, how I protect myself. In international waters, the laws are weak. 
That's how I protect myself. Got Daily it. contracts. Got it. That seems like a lot of paper. And but good for you. Uh, we'll spike. Well, I've got a contract guy, and he's on a weekly contract, so I only have to do one contract a week. <laughs> so the contract guy gets a week's uh, stay. Yeah, that's why he's so into it. Okay. You know? And like, you know, he tells me it's really important that I keep doing this, you know, to keep things above board. So sure, sure. Um, well, Spike, yeah, what uh, what do you have for us this week? Well, so, okay. So I saw the Bartolo Colon pitcher, mm-hmm. 46-year-old pitcher, big guy, good pitcher, great pitcher, legend, if you ask me, real idol of mine, Bartolo. Okay. He's saying he wants to play another year in the majors. Now, I that, that in and of itself is not really of concern or anything. But he said that if he's going to pitch one more year in the major leagues, if given the choice, he would want it to be with the New York Mets. Mm, okay. Now, I am asking you and your listeners to help me help Bartolo. This is a cry for help. I don't know what sort of duress Bartolo Colon is currently in, you know, <laughs> But I know that it is bad. He's probably in some sort of, you know, sex dungeon situation. He could be facing like a series of Sophie's choices orchestrated by an evil mastermind where over and over again, he's forced to select between two of his children, whether one lives or dies. And Mm -hmm. he's crying out to us through the media saying that if he were to pitch another, he would do it with the New York Mets. There's no other explanation for a statement like that. No man under anything other than the most extreme duress known to humanity has ever said, give me one more year with the Mets. I think we need to help Bartolo Colon, which is why I'm launching my new campaign, you know, spray the cologne. Okay. Because we are going to spread ourselves out throughout America, ideally mask free spittle flying in order to find Bartolo Colon. I don't know where he, he might not even be in America. This might need to be a global search, but I will be using my yacht to take people around the world. Ideally the most spittle filled people in order to find and save Bartolo Colon. I don't care how many nurses and doctors in emergency wards we have to talk to, to find the location of Bartolo Colon. Cause we need to save him. He is an idol of mine and he is in trouble, Shane. <laughs> And I know that you're not a humanitarian like I am. No, I know that not, you, nowhere, nowhere close. No. Yeah. But as a humanitarian, as someone who cares about the little people mm-hmm. and also Bartolo Colon, you know, I am ready to do whatever it takes to help him. So I remember a scene in Homeland where somebody was speaking on TV and everything seemed normal, but their fingers were tapping out Morse code. And that was like a secret signal that, this person was actually in distress. And so if I'm reading you correctly, you're saying that Bartolo Colon, uh, by saying that he wants to play for the Mets, is telling us that he is in deep, deep trouble. Yeah. Here's the quote he said to the media. If it was up to me, I would retire with the Mets. I would like my career to end in New York. That is the statement of someone in the worst situation on earth (laughs) crying out for our help. So spray the cologne. Okay. Get on my yacht, spread the virus, the virus in this case being the knowledge that we have to save Bartolo Colon. And just one thing, uh, to be clear, you don't know the exact scenario. You mentioned perhaps 
he's being forced repeatedly to choose between which children he wants to kill. That's speculation at this point. <laughs> I don't know. Look, I've been in some situations in my life. You, sp- you don't spend enough time like I do in international waters without running into <laughs> the sorts of people who would theoretically kidnap one of their enemies and continually force them to make Sophie's choice after Sophie's choice. Okay. I live, I run in a certain set of circles where that's the sort of thing that happens. Have I ever done that? Have I ever taken, say one of my crew members who's refused to sign a one day contract, maybe a chef, a sous chef, maybe, maybe his name is Rolando and forced him over and over. And was this a simulation? No, it wasn't. I really found all of his many children and family members and made him pick over and over again. Now I didn't kill any of them. I want to be clear that these were not real Sophie's choices, but in his head, in this guy's head, he thinks I'm making him Sophie's choice over and over again. Bam, bam, bam. Now I'm not saying I did that hypothetically, but it is the sort of thing you run into when you're in my circle. Sure. You know, sort of the elite global yachting circle. All right. So spray the cologne. They're going to try to, Spike is going to try to help our total cologne. Uh, Spike is the last thing. A lot of us are shut in right now. Can't travel. Uh, for those of us who are kind of living vicariously through you, what is like a fun thing you like to do in a place like Madagascar? Oh, I'm not getting off the boat. No, oh, no, no. Okay. That island's that island. You you might as well just cross it off the map after what I'm about to do to them. <laughs> All right. Spike Friedman, thank you very much. Honor and a privilege is always Shane. Segment break. All right. Tough news from Madagascar. They probably thought things couldn't get much worse after the movie, and now this. Tough stuff. All right, uh, it is time, very excited to say, for Apocalypse Sports Trivia. You know what? That's an actual league, a free trivia league with 120 people in it. If anybody wants to join that, you get in touch with me. It's a lot of fun. The fifth fortnight is about to start. So each week on this podcast, I like to ask one question and leave it out to the listeners. And whoever gets it right, I say their name. Everybody's happy. Last week, we asked this question. As the American Dream Team accepted their gold medals in men's basketball atop the podium at the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, the bronze medal team stood to their left wearing colorful t-shirts that featured a skeleton dunking a basketball. Name both the bronze medal winning team and the sponsor responsible for the shirts. So that one was answered almost simultaneously by Adam Zimmerman and Brian Muthing. They both got it right. And the correct answer, of course, Lithuania was the bronze medal team. And those tie-dye shirts were sponsored by the Grateful Dead. Pretty cool little bit of basketball history there. Now, in just a moment, we're going to speak with Noah Davis about international soccer. So this next question feels appropriate. And if you know it, send it to me at Shane Ryan here on Twitter or ApocalypseSports24 at gmail.com. Here's the question. It starts with a quote. I spent a lot of money on booze, birds, and fast cars. The rest I just squandered. This quote was uttered by the only man from Northern Ireland to win the European Footballer of the Year Award. Perhaps not surprisingly, he died in 2005 at age 59 due to complications from a liver transplant made necessary because of his chronic alcoholism. Name the player. All right, again, if you know it, Shane Ryan here at Twitter, ApocalypseSports24 at gmail.com. Good luck on that one. Break. Last weekend in Germany, the Bundesliga kicked off again. That is their top domestic soccer league. And it was really the first major professional sports league to start play again. 
they had our full attention. And not only that, but the English Premier League and MLS are also formulating their own return-to-play plans. Here to talk about that and so much more is ESPN contributor and 3.4 Media co-founder Noah Davis. Noah, how you doing, my friend? I am doing, uh, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, we were just talking before. I think it has been at least 15 years, if not more, since you and I have spoken voice to voice. Yeah, just oh, my memory of you is you just draining three-pointers in the Media Bistro Basketball League. <laughs> I'm glad. There were worse memories you could have had of me, so that's a pretty good one, all things considered. Um, so, Noah, obviously you're a, a huge soccer guy, and I was on Twitter, and I, I think a lot of Americans like me who are not huge soccer guys uh, were watching Germany uh, this weekend. Were you on that? Were you excited? I, I was, yeah. I, I'm sorry you picked uh, Schalke, one, one of the worst teams. I would not have suggested <laughs> that. Uh, did not go very well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was excited. I think one for sports just to come back and have live sports to be able to watch. Uh, two, I think the Bundesliga is a really fun league that a lot of casual American sports fans don't know too much about. Um, but I think the Bundesliga, you know, they, they play a pretty fun style, a lot of attacking football. There's a lot of young Americans in the league as well. Um, so that was, you know, that's always nice too. Yeah. And you mentioned before we, we got going here, Claudia Reyna uh, is one of the most exciting ones. And I think your quote, not to step on your line, but your quote was he got hurt before. Uh, and this is sort of why we can't have nice things as U.S. soccer. Yeah, uh, it's Giovanni Reyna. Giovanni Reyna is Claudio Reyna's son. And so he he was the one. Uh, <laughs> that, that shows how little I know, Noah. That, that's embarrassing, and I'm going to leave it in just so people can see the level of my ignorance. But to my, credit, to my credit, I got the family right. You did get the family right, and you got the joke right. So those are the two most important things. But, yeah, he was supposed to he's – a, he's a young – he's a 17-year-old kid. He was supposed to get his first start for Dortmund. And then managed to hurt himself in warm-ups. Uh, I hope that he is okay, first and foremost. It's, I imagine that was crushing. But there's just this, it feels like all these young American players get hurt a lot. And uh, it seems like he was the latest one. So so that was too bad. But it was fun. Uh, Tyler Adams is another young American, plays for RB Leipzig. He was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, I know you you like high-energy guys. Tyler Adams is a high-energy guy. So you might want to get on the Leipzig train. Nice, uh, nice. You know, Josh Sargent uh, started on the bench uh, for, for Werder Bremen, but he's fun as well. Uh, Weston McKinney at Schalke not have, did not have a great uh, game as the team kind of struggled, but, you know, he, he's another fun one to watch. Makes very difficult things look very easy and very easy things make look very difficult. So, <laughs> you know, that can be kind of fun, too. Nice. I'm still marveling at the fact that because I, I do remember watching Claudio Arena play in the 90s. The fact that I thought he could still be playing in Germany is... <laughs> Really, really something. Um, and yeah, real quick, just to go on a, a tangent there about U.S. soccer. Um, again, talking to a casual moron here. Uh, what is the state of U.S. soccer? The last thing I like remember is just not making the World Cup. Have things improved since then? Do things look better? Um, it depends how you uh, want to. Yes, I, they, they do. Um, I think Greg Berhalter is their new coach. He's a former center back. Uh, very programmatic, very systematized. I think he's a good coach. I don't think he's a great coach. There's a lot of young, exciting players. Um, there was sort of a lack of young, exciting players who came through and they all fell apart and that's why it didn't work and that's why they didn't qualify. Um, but you know, if you look at guys like Christian Pulisic and McKinney and Tyler Adams and Reyna and Josh Sargent, and there's probably, you know, another half dozen and you can look and you can say, okay, not all of these guys have to make it, but if, you know, a third to a half of them, 
kind of get close to their potential. Like this, this has the potential to be a really fun, exciting team in, you know, 12 months, 18 months, two years. Um, they're not there yet and the results haven't been there, but I do think that if you kind of squint and if some of the guys <laughs> who are playing in really top leagues like the Bundesliga and the EPL, yeah. um, and even, you know, some of the guys in MLS too, the young guys in MLS, the last U 20 teams, uh, have been very good and have done really well at the world cup. And that's a really good sign for the future of, of any program. If, if your U twenties do well, does it, is it fair to say that it was a huge fluke regardless of, uh, how good or bad we were by our own standards that we missed the World Cup and that you can pretty much expect that next time hopefully they'll they'll at least be there. I think it was a huge yeah a huge fluke. I think if you did that tournament a hundred times, they probably honestly wouldn't miss it again. Like it really? was just wow. so it was so yeah. shocking. Um, I think it's also you know like that team for a reason that was basically just like the. The, the generation of guys who were supposed to be in their prime on that team didn't pan out. And right, because right. that happened, they had a big gap where they had guys who were too young and they had guys who were too old and they had no one in the middle. Yeah. And that it's not an excuse, but it's just a reality. And I think what's, what's difficult for fans is that the, the, the steps that they had made with the youth programs were actually starting to pay off. Like the youth programs were going in the right direction even though the senior team sucked basically. Okay. And so I think the failure to qualify for the world cup was a travesty and absurd and never should have happened, but is a little bit divorced from the actual state of the program itself. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. So things are on the upswing, even though you had this brief little blip. Um, one more thing on Germany. What was your impression just in general of seeing uh, a game like that with no fans? I, th I mean, it's it's super weird, um, but I think it's also, you know, there, there have been soccer games in the past that have not had fans because some fan base does horribly racist stuff and right, UEFA right, slaps right. them on the wrist and it's like you can't have fans for three games. And so, you know, I, I think it was it's it was weird, um, especially, you know, that that Dortmund Schalke game. That's like one of the biggest rivalries in the world. And, you're, you know, you have tens of thousands of fans yelling at each other and Dortmund is loud. And, um, and so, it, you know, it lacked a certain atmosphere and I think it will get old after a while, Right. but it was kind of interesting. Um, you know, I was thinking about this, like in comparison to the golf that happened this weekend. And I feel like the problem with the golf is that athletes are boring. And so if you're, if you're relying on golfers or athletes to carry the entertainment, it doesn't work. But if it's just like, if you're just watching the guys play soccer, you know, it's you can still see the talent and it's kind of cool in some ways to hear how loud they are and hear them, you know, calling out ball, ball, ball. And like kind of all the stuff that you hear in training that you don't hear when there are 80,000 fans in the stadium because it's too loud. Yeah, I was one thing that amazed me was how how much and how frequently the coaches yell throughout the yeah. whole game. Uh, and yeah, and to your point, I watch both. I watch the soccer and the golf. And obviously, I'm a much bigger golf guy, but I thought the soccer was way more entertaining uh, within that context, just like you said, because you get to see the flow of the game and yeah, hearing the banter of golfers is just a nightmarish. <laughs> and Rory, I gotta say, Rory McIlroy is probably the smartest and most witty golfer out there, and even he couldn't do anything. And then the rest of them yeah. are just like dead boring. So um, yeah, great point there. And so no, let's also talk that we got the EPL thinking about coming back. It looks like they've just agreed on a start of a training date. Uh, MLS in America is, I think there's a summer tournament in Orlando that they're talking about. 
what is the status right now of the rest of these leagues coming back? Is it imminent or is it something that's still vague at this point? Um, I think it's still vague. I do think it's probably more optimistic now than it was a month ago in terms of some of them coming back. Um, I think it sounds really like the, the tournament, the MLS tournament in Orlando will likely happen, although the players are pushing back. Um, the EPL is doing small group training. You know, a couple of the leagues have been canceled already, some of the other bigger European leagues. And I saw Scott, Scotland called theirs yeah. off, right? Yeah. yeah, Scottish. I, I think uh, the French League, I don't think, is coming back. Um, nice. You know, Divisions 3 and 4 in England have been canceled, but the Premier League and the Championship, which is the second division, are trying to figure out how to come back. Um, they're, they're just doing small group training and no contact in the EPL now. So that's obviously a long way away from playing. Um, I, I don't think they're ever going to be fans in these stadiums, like right. certainly not for this year. Um, and even next year, I think is sort of like, I don't know how you do it without a vaccine. I don't think you can put 20,000, 80,000 people in a stadium safely. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the, the issues is the safety of the players. And there've been a couple players who have been kind of vocal about not feeling totally comfortable about coming back and sort of about, you know, what are our risks and how is the league going to protect us? And, no, I think those are certainly legitimate concerns. Um, I think there's also an issue of, of fitness and how fit they're going to be. And I don't know. I, I don't totally buy. I think Raheem Sterling said it was going to take five weeks to get back in shape. Right. Um, I don't know. It, like, I just don't totally believe that. I also think it's kind of on you to have stayed in shape during this thing that's going on. Like, it, it's, it's certainly hard. You know, I, I don't think you could get into soccer shape on your own running in your own house or running on a treadmill. But I think you could stay in pretty decent shape and then get into shape pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that I, I, I do think that the EPL will come back cause I think there's too much money involved, um, not to do it. Even if you lose some money and, you know, in, in stadium stuff, um, MLS, I think will probably come back as well. My question is really, you know, what would happen and do these institutions have the strength if someone got sick or if there was a small outbreak to kind of stop the whole thing like i do think that germany could do it because i feel like the bundesliga is a pretty strong kind of collective unity mm -hmm. um and you already saw with one of the team one of the bundesliga two teams uh one of their players tested positive or two of their players tested positive and so they couldn't play last weekend and also a coach for the Bundesliga went out to get toothpaste, which wasn't allowed. So he couldn't coach. Okay. okay. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't so entirely know if, if the EPL would do that. Yeah. And so they're continuing. The Bundesliga is continuing despite the fact that, you know, again, not in their league, but that there has been a positive test. Cause I think that's probably one of the biggest questions, right? Is for all of these sports. Okay. You bring PGA tour golf back, you bring baseball back. What happens the minute a couple people or even one person tests positive? Do you have to immediately shut it down again? Or is there some room for saying, uh, okay, well we have a plan in place. If one person tests, uh, Adam silver, I think there was like a leaked meeting or something with the owners and players where he was kind of saying it would be a disaster if there were positive tests. How does that work? I mean, is, is there margin for error or not? I, I think they're trying to build it in. I mean, in the, in the Bundesliga, in the second division Bundesliga, the team 
where the player tested positive, they're not playing for the next two weeks. And that flexibility is somehow built into the schedule. Okay. 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 So that makes sense to me, I guess. Oh, the but whole what team, happens if the whole happens team again, is not playing for two weeks. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that makes sense to me, I guess there, you could have a little bit of flexibility, but what happens if that happens again, then you start running into scheduling issues. Mm-hmm. I think it's also a matter of like, you know, do the players totally trust that they would fo- the leagues would the leagues and teams would follow these protocols, even if they were in existence? And I think you're seeing, you know, if you read kind of between some of the stuff in the media that the players are saying, I'm not sure that the players totally believe that, you know, and like I personally, I don't know, I don't totally believe that the EPL would just would start up and then would just stop itself. There's a, a good quote from Danny Rose uh, from Newcastle who said, the government is saying we are bringing football back because it is going to boost the nation's morale. I don't give a fuck about the nation's morale. People's lives are at risk. Uh, that's obviously probably the most uh, emphatic thing we've heard. Yeah. From what you're hearing from American players or other English players, what is that common? Is that a common belief or are they itching to get back? What's the kind of status there? I mean, I, th- I think they all want to get back because they're all bored out of their mind, right? Uh, and like they love playing soccer. Um, I think there is kind of an awareness of we need to do this safely and how do we do this safely? You know, for, for the American players, one of the problems is so you isolate all 26 teams in Orlando, which you can do, but they're talking about a month long tournament or, you know, five or six week long tournament. They're not going to have their families there probably because they want to limit the number of people who are right. in this space, which makes sense. But that's sucks. You know, then you're like, you don't have your family for five or six weeks. You don't get to see them. You're just alone. You can't really do anything because you don't you're quarantined, you know. Uh, And so I think they're kind of saying, like, is is this worth it for us? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. It all seems like it's very vague now. And it's an interesting thing as a fan. And you probably feel this, too, where I'm like, I would kill to have the NBA back, for instance. And. It really is nice just having soccer back, but there's just a little bit of guilt as well. <laughs> like what this impulse I have to, to want sports back. What is it when you multiply it by millions and millions of sports fans around the world? Uh, is it just having like, is it going to have these awful effects on people's health? Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be interesting. And, you know, and then I think you get into like the football season. I think the football season, the American football season is a whole different thing. I, I think you can kind of do it in some ways for smaller team sports but you know you're talking about 100 and i mean what does the nfl team have to carry like you know 250 300 500 people probably for games like i don't know how you're gonna do that yeah it's unbelievable all right noah davis thank you very much i appreciate it my friend thanks for having me segment break Michael Jordan. Ah, seamless. Okay, The Last Dance, the final two episodes aired on Sunday night. Here to talk about that. Writer, comedian, all-around basketball knower, my good pal, Brandon Gardner. Brandon, welcome. Hi, I'm glad to be back. So, last night, episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance obviously concluded, and I have a list of things I'd like to talk about here, Brandon, and I'm sure you do too, but maybe just to start off... um, Overall impressions. It's been five weeks now, ten hours. Uh, what is your what? What can we say in summary about the show? Yeah, I, I would start just by saying that it was uh, before I even try to evaluate it um, as a documentary. 
such a welcome uh, source of entertainment. And I'm someone who probably would be very entertained just watching Jordan highlights. So just getting to watch highlights through his playing career, especially really good high definition uh, quality highlights has been really fun. Um, and then the other thing is just like hearing him cause he doesn't speak that much. He's not a real public person. Just getting to see him now and, re- and getting to see him reflect on these things is very fun. Um, and uh, for me, uh, yeah. so it'll definitely be something where, uh, I'll miss it as a Sunday night thing to look forward to, uh, because I definitely enjoyed every moment of it. You know, it's funny. I don't know that I've seen this technique in a documentary before, but over and over again, they got great mileage out of just showing Jordan yeah. uh, video on an iPad of other people saying shit. Yeah. And uh, I know it was episode eight, but I actually watched it last night because I was behind. But the Gary Payton thing made me laugh a lot. And yeah. he does like he does. Jordan does incredulous better than almost anyone I've ever seen. Oh, man, he's so he can be so expressive. Yeah. Yeah, he he really does have like a very expressive personality. It is kind of interesting in some ways that he never really like wanted to do TV. Um, obviously, it would have been a slam dunk for any network if if that was something he ever wanted to do. Uh, but sure. yeah, he's just very content to be private. Yeah, uh, after being so public, and he definitely like lent that skill to all of his uh, advertisements when he was playing. Um, but uh, yeah, he had yeah no interest in being I think like a talking head on a show. I think that probably would have been too small a role for hit someone like him. Yeah, and low status almost like he yeah. he didn't want to be anybody's Ahmad Rashad in a way. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I last night again we had let's see we had the Pacers series we had the Jazz series stuff we already knew both jazz series yeah both yeah right both jazz series because they went back in time Uh, actually that's a good place to start i've seen a lot of stuff on twitter branded where people are kind of criticizing the structure and saying it's a little bit all over the place i i do have critiques of the show but i actually thought it was fairly intuitive from the beginning it's like you were going to go through 1998 the whole time and then you're going to detour back in time in a very specific chronological way over the 10 episodes. Yeah. I I, kind of thought like in terms of how well made it was in the structure, I really liked it. Yeah, I did too. I thought it felt very natural, especially these last two episodes where you get to see the first uh, series against the jazz. And so then that's built right into the the drama of the second series uh, against the jazz that felt very natural to me. Yeah, and it brought back a lot of memories, even something as simple as seeing the way John Stockton almost appeared to shoot from the side of his head, like little things like that that I had forgotten. And it was like, because those are the series, I don't know about you, but those are the things I remember best, like the early part of Jordan's career before he won titles. I was too young, Um, but the jazz stuff is still like really resonant to me because that's when I really started to become, uh, maybe it was like 94-ish when I started to really get into NBA basketball. And so that stuff was like... Yeah, exactly. Me too. Like I missed... Um, basically everything through Jordan's, even Jordan's first three championships. Like, I feel like I first started watching same, same. Um, the, the year the Rockets first won. And then I really remember very vividly the Pacers game where Jordan um, had his first game back and that being a big deal and watching that. Uh, and then that, like, I watched as much uh, as I could of, of, of those uh, three-peat years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was another thing that was fun to watch and, and this is uh you sort of see like like the the jordan we saw really wasn't even 
he was very different from like the Jordan of the late eighties and, and early nineties. Like different player, right? I mean, unbelievably different. Totally. Um, yeah. Like I truly like, it's so hard for me to not think of him as just that, that guy with the, the turnaround jumper. Yeah. yeah. Um, and thinking of him almost as a post player. And to, so to watch the, the sort of springy years, uh, it was pretty wild. It was, yeah. Like the, um, I keep, I always keep thinking about the Celtics game uh, where he, I think it was sixty three, he scored against oh, Larry yeah. Bird, and just nobody could stop him. And that that version is something we never got to see as kids, really, because it was by the time, like you said, he returned in ninety ninety five and then won his last three titles. It was a different player, and I, and that's the kind of thing. Like it's a big cliche that everybody uses about how he evolved so well. But I don't think I truly understood how much he really did evolve until I saw that footage of him being just an unreal, phenomenal athlete in the early stage of his career. Yeah, it was it was so much uh, driving and up in the air. Um, and in our sort of era of watching him, he would have like a play or two like that a game, maybe. Right. Um, right. But back then, it was like every time down the court, um, he was like attacking the basket. Yeah, incredible. And yeah, so I, I think I agree with you that that is one of the just aesthetic pleasures of watching this documentary and why it was impossible for it to be boring because of A, the athleticism and B, just the drama that followed his entire career. Like there was never really a dull moment. Um, and he was such a yeah, dominant figure. He was figure. always interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even when he was kicking ass, it was still interesting, wasn't it? It's like, okay, the Pistons were, were story number one, like the best story, and maybe the Pacers were the second best, but... Even when they were dominating, it was like you, you couldn't look away from him because he was such a comprehensive winner that of a kind that we may never, ever see again. I don't think we'll see it in the same way. Like, that's the thing is, as people try to compare Jordan to LeBron or whoever else, I don't think it's possible for someone to like it was such a like right person at the right moment type of thing with Jordan where like I don't think anyone can compare it to, to what he was as sort of an icon mm -hmm. for all these different reasons. Yeah. So one thing uh, you and I were talking about before uh, to go into sort of the the nitty gritty of the documentary, uh, a big part of the whole story was Bulls management, Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf. Right. Uh, I'm looking up Krause now. March 2017 is when he died, and so he was not interviewed for this. They had some old footage, old interviews of him, and and interviews he did. But really, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, got to tell the story, at least right. at least from his side of things. Now, one thing I thought was cool, the very, very last line, uh, the very last thing you see on the documentary is a line of text. And it's after they go through, OK, Jordan retired, Steve Kerr was traded, Pippen was traded, et cetera, et cetera. The very last line is, and then the Bulls started to rebuild. And I love that because it was almost Jordan-esque in its, its vindictiveness, but, <laughs> but it also stuck it to Reinsdorf, in my opinion, because it's like you and Kraus, but again, Kraus is a dead man, so he doesn't get to, to say his side. But it's like, yeah, they haven't won a title. They haven't won a title in the 22 years since. Um, but yeah, tell me what you thought of like Reinsdorf and, and that whole thing, because even now... Well, I definitely... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, one I, I, I will also say is... Uh, so when I really started watching a lot of NBA was, was mid nineties and I was a huge bulls fan and specifically a Jordan fan and the, in the second three Pete years. And I really tried to stay a bulls fan afterwards. Interesting. Like okay. I did, I was sort of like that, that, you know, that's my team. Um, and I rooted for them for a long time and for a while they were, they were really bad. I do think like that, that line of, of, and then they started to rebuild is a little, I, like, I think it's a franchise that's had a lot of bad luck. 
Oh, Derek uh, Rose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Derek Rose, like that was a team that that definitely could have made the finals and 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 possibly won. They were really good. They had they were maybe the number one team maybe in the East at, at some point or close mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And um, before that, they had bad luck where uh, they had um, Jay Williams. They drafted him out of Duke, I think like t- number two maybe, and he was in that motorcycle accident. I think after his rookie year. Yep. Uh, they they kept having like Eddie Curry. They drafted. And then he had all these like heart problems. Um, so it's, it's, I definitely like, 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 uh, Michael said, uh, Michael, my good friend, Michael Jordan said <laughs> that, that like teams will rebuild. Like I, he, he referenced, he referenced the Cubs. Who did he say would been rebuilding for? Yeah, that was it. The Cubs have been rebuilding since the thirties or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that it's like when you're that close, you don't try to rebuild. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think they, they, had some of that was bad luck that they they had so little to show in the in the last uh, twenty years. Yeah, you know, and one thing I think is that you know Kraus was I think he was a pretty good GM. And one one thing that was almost yeah. touching it was almost touching to hear Pippen say that when he was going through and saying, yeah, we had the best yeah, player and the best this, best the that. Best. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that was cool to, to hear that. Well, I mean, very magnanimous in a way of Pippen because he got fucked over right. by the bad sides of Jerry Kraus, which is his weird stubbornness and just general like uh inhumanity or <laughs> whatever you want to say yeah um but yeah reinsdorf's role to me interesting because he got he gets to he gets to almost unchallenged until the very end when they show jordan the clip of him saying uh that you know oh we could have kept the team together or whatever um or the reasons why he didn't keep the team together but before that he gets to tell his story and to me a lot of it seemed like bullshit and i, I think kind of we're on the same page there yeah, and a big one in particular, I think, was when he tells the story of uh, Pippen taking that long-term contract and Reinsdorf saying, well, I advised against it. I said, you know, it's probably in your best interest to take a shorter contract. Uh, Reinsdorf was, mm-hmm. could have renegotiated his contract, and that's not even really Jerry Krause's call. Like, that's an owner's call. Um, and especially when, Pip, when the uh, NBA was making so much more money and, and Pippen was so underpaid, uh, and he was he was winning championships for them. That's right. He totally could have gone back and give him a, a salary that was fair for his production, and it would have been there would have been a lot of goodwill with that. Um, and he didn't. And 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 I don't think um, he maybe would, I, gets enough responsibility for that. Yeah, I mean that is the central dynamic of this whole thing is that you are the owner. So at any point you can overrule Jerry Krause. You know, it's like he almost like the whole like, oh, my hands were tied type thing. And then he does a thing where it's like, oh, yeah, well, uh, after that championship, the next day I called and offered, you know, Phil Jackson a one year deal to come back. It's like, yeah, but come on. Like like you said before, uh, Jerry Krause all year has been saying Phil won't come back. He's been undermining this idea that they can come back. By that time, the deed is done. It's over. And so it's like, yeah, it's a very like cover your ass way of operating where you're like, oh, I offered him a contract. Well, it's like, yeah, but really you didn't. Really you sat idly by and let Jerry Krause like destroy this team. Right, exactly. Until Uh, you were pushed to the point of like you needed to say that you asked Phil because Chicago would have, uh, you know, never forgiven you. Yeah, and it sounds like you were there in a way. um, But imagine being a lifelong Bulls fan and... (laughs) Watching your, <laughs> watching the management of this team throw away a team that you know who knows maybe they never would have won again but they definitely had a chance right and if there was goodwill there they definitely would have had a great chance I can't even imagine being a fan of that and watching them go no it's time to rebuild and just not even making an effort crazy to me yeah it's great I 
I guess like Jerry Krause used to reference a lot the uh, Larry Bird Pistons or Larry Bird Celtics teams as the as what he was trying to avoid. Yeah, um, I think that was like fresh in people's mind of of the Celtics paying uh, Bird and McHale and Parrish till they were really old, and then the Celtics went through a really long rebuilding team uh, period where they were really bad for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of the like hip smart thing to do at the time to to try to avoid that to um, almost like what it seems like Belichick does of like don't be sentimental um, trade away guys when their value is the highest and 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 restock and that seemed to be like his approach which at least on paper sort of makes sense yeah it does it makes a little more sense in football because you have such a huge team that you know one person isn't the isn't the life or death of it but. Again, yeah. you know, Celtics, same deal. It took a really long time before they won a title again. Um, but yeah, so, and then one more broad question before we get into the stuff that we saw last night uh, on the court is, obviously we've talked about this before, where Michael Jordan had control of this footage. He had to okay it. It definitely right. seems like there were strings attached, um, that they were kind of marching to his tune a little bit, which, as we said, didn't make it any less entertaining. But I am curious what you think, Brandon, of how this might have looked different or things that maybe you noticed that were um, a little too, like, you know, self-promotional to Jordan. Uh, how might it have been different if somebody like, I don't know, Ken Burns, who criticized it, got a hold of all right. this footage and had free reign to do whatever he wanted? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly. And, and the director has said that, According to him, um, there was nothing that, that, that Jordan vetoed. He would give creative notes, but, but nothing where it was, where it was an ultimatum. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and so to a certain extent, it's like maybe it's, it's the director's sort of uh, choice of, of what feels most entertaining. Because there are like stumbling blocks. Like you and I had, were texting and, and, and talking the other day about uh, um, they don't really go into that game seven against the Pacers and, and how Michael Jordan had a, uh, for him, pretty subpar game. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how if he had lost that game seven, that's how he goes out. He loses in a game seven of a, of a conference finals and, with a bad game. And uh, it would really affect his, I think, sort of clutch uh, legend. And totally, they yeah, don't absolutely. really get into that at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I do think too. There's like there is just a narrative structure, and, and and it has to be this way, and it's true to some extent. But anytime something happens to him, like you know B.J. Armstrong having a great game or Horace Grant beating him, it is very much framed in the thing of this was point A on a path to Jordan's revenge. You know what I mean? Or this right, is something, right. and it's like yeah, okay, the Orlando Magic thing, fair enough, because they had to play the next time. But you know, you could easily say like, hey. B.J. Armstrong had a great game for a subpar, a vastly inferior team, and did great to get a win. Like yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be Jordan like crushing him. You know, you and I actually uh, ages ago we watched the um, Allen Iverson game against the Lakers in the finals, where they won Game One right. when Iverson was just through the roof. And I think you and I and the entire world remembers that as, hey, Allen Iverson went against the juggernaut and won. Doesn't matter that the Lakers won in five. That was still like a cool effort. Um, but I, so I do think there's that thing of where like every little piece of story is geared toward like Jordan's success in the end or toward his like revenge. When they show after they won that championship and they're, um, I guess on the, the stage getting ready to receive their trophy, they show a little bit of Phil Jackson and Michael talking and, and Phil says something like, I didn't think we could do it or, or something. And Michael's like, I always knew we would. Mm-hmm. 
and it's got this 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 Michael Jordan like force of determination of of I will always win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not really true, um, but <laughs> yeah. that the the doc definitely follows that uh, vision. Uh, and because like the big thing is, it's like if you did, then you would never lose a game. There was games where people were better than you That's and right. outplayed you, and you lost. That's and right. to a certain extent you were lucky there was like all these different things had an element of luck to it like even john stockton missing that shot at the end like it hit the front of the rim it could have fallen That's jazz right. win oh yeah and it's a game seven uh so there's a lot about you that or about your career that i think um he would like to say it was it was force of will there was no question that i could have ever lost that i think is uh fun and but and, and you know for him i'm sure it's convenient but isn't accurate yeah, and it, you know it is it is such an interesting thing like even following golf um the really great players seem to get lucky more than their fair share. Uh Tiger Woods is the same thing. There are times when you're like god I don't know how he won that tournament cuz he needed this to go and this to go and this to go. Right. Uh, but there is and you're like is it will or just like does the universe just love this person in some way? Um or maybe all these things combined. But yeah, I agree with you. I I thought honestly, I mean Okay, so you, you you don't hear his wife and kid mentioned at all or any of his affairs or anything. So that's right. one thing. But I did think the most glaring thing was that game seven against the Pacers. All they did was show like every basket he made and then like right. you know put some struggle music on. And then at the end, they win. But And even you mentioned it's a shame they didn't give Tony Kukoc a little more credit. Well, that was the thing. I, I rewatched the game uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, the thing that... Is most exciting or dramatic maybe to me is they start Kukoc, and that was something they would toggle between starting either Kukoc or Rodman. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Kukoc, the other thing that I wish they had put a little bit more time on Kukoc uh, was that in a lot of ways he was this like trend that has kept going in, in the NBA of, of highly skilled European players mm-hmm. uh, coming in. But he definitely was uh, at the beginning where they had a reputation of, of being soft. That's right, yeah. And so he starts that game guarding Dale Davis, and Dale Davis makes a couple buckets. And then at the halftime show, John Sally's like, they got to put Rodman back in. Kukoc is, is, is being destroyed down there. That's going to be the big adjustment in the second half. And Phil Jackson starts Kukoc again in the second half. And Kukoc has like a huge third quarter he makes five jumpers in a row i forget how many points he has in the quarter but it's a lot for like mm-hmm. a game where they're only scoring 80 points yeah, yeah um and he finished i think as the second highest scorer to jordan i think he had like 21 mm-hmm. and so he's a huge part of it uh and they sort of skip his heroics because his heroics don't fit the narrative yeah yeah and then to, on the flip side of that um you uh you brought up to me that steve kerr is a guy who gets a lot of attention for somebody who was very much a, a bit player, uh, ha- had big shots, like no doubt about yeah. it, and had the similarity with Jordan with their fathers and stuff. And and of course mm-hmm. he's famous now, but he really gets uh, he really gets the hero's treatment in a way uh, for his playing. Yes, if you go if you went through like I went through Basketball Reference and I was looking at um, things like win shares on the Bulls that season, then um, he would be like seventh or eighth. Yeah, um, there's a bunch remarkable. of people before you get to Steve Kerr. Um, it's like Jordan Pippen, uh, Kukoc, uh, uh, Rodman, Ron Harper. Um, there's like a lot of and and again, like Ron Harper, I always thought was like a really interesting player. That maybe they briefly mentioned the fact that Harper had been like a star scorer before he joined the Bulls. They did mention that, yeah, yeah, but it was it was very quick. 
Yeah, you went from like a guy who averaged 20 a game to averaging like seven a game mm-hmm. and being like mainly a defensive uh, stopper. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, uh, and they they did mention that, but again, it, like you said, it was nowhere near the amount of coverage that Kerr got. Um, and yeah, and Steve Kerr is also like he's he's a good interview. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, he so he did, and then there's other people. I think the other thing you mentioned was Craig Hodges. Um, back in the day, there's absolutely nothing about him in this documentary, and he was a very political figure, and you would think would have been a good contrast to Jordan's uh, almost like extreme apolitical nature. Uh, but for yeah. whatever reason, Hodges doesn't get mentioned, even though he won rings with them and was quite a good shooter. And yeah, there was like a lot of drama to him um, claiming that he was sort of blackballed by the NBA. And it does seem like that there's evidence that um, it was very strange that suddenly he couldn't even get a workout uh, with an NBA team after uh, some of the political uh, statements he made. And yeah, and when you look at who's making this documentary, ESPN, with their relationships with the NBA, that's where you start to go, okay. Was there, a, was there a mandate of some kind? And as, if you're a director doing this, it's not even a mandate that would, you know, make that big a difference, right? Like, oh, yeah, of course I can make this movie without Craig Hodges or whatever. But it is, you look at those differences of what could have been there uh, and what wasn't. Um, and then what was? Like, one thing someone tweeted that I think is sort of funny is just, like, you see so much more Carmen Electra than you see Jordan's wife. You'd, like, almost never see Jordan's wife. <laughs> I know, wife. I know. No, yeah, Jordan, and that had to be a rule. That had to be a thing. My wife and kids are off limits, except they did have the kids, of course, talking about how much they hated the jazz. But yeah, but that's it. Like that, they Jordan as family man is exclusively related to fathers, brothers, mother. Nothing with wife and kids. Something else that I I read too that I think is just funny to me is is where you see Jordan is not his house, so it's sort of like supposed to represent the type of place he does live in, but it's not his house. Oh, that's funny. Shot, I did not know yeah. that. I didn't know that. <laughs> so it gives a sense of like, yeah, how private I guess he is. Um, really quick. One thing I want to talk about too, is like all, how all of Jordan's foils from the beginning came off. Um, and one thing I thought last night was like Reggie Miller. And it's, I, I know it's like pretty much the, how they're presented in the documentary, but I thought Reggie Miller came off the best and like the most fearless around Jordan. And I ended up respecting and, uh, being more interested in him maybe than I had been previously, knowing, of course, he's a great player. But right. I, I was like, yeah, this guy really stepped up to Jordan and arguably outplayed him in that series in some ways. Yeah, I mean, and that's cool. I mean, that's just like one of those things that's like very cool to watch someone not be impressed by by Michael Jordan, to see someone like to see him come to, off that screen and just like push Jordan in the chest in that moment and then make the shot. Yeah, when he shoves Jordan, it's awesome because that's exactly what people accuse Jordan of doing against Russell. Like he, <laughs> yeah, Reggie, I mean, can you imagine how furious Jordan must have been? <laughs> and also Jordan was so much stronger than him. Yeah. Which, like he probably outweighed him by 30 pounds. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, it's very cool. Um, and then... Again, actually, and the one thing I, um, I, I think I'd been like these last 20 years uh, thinking that it was an offensive foul, what Jordan did to Brian Russell. But I don't know how you felt. I was actually pretty convinced by what they were saying about how it really like he had him. Maybe it was a foul just by nature of what he did, but he didn't need to. Like Russell was going to go to the exact same place no matter what. And I think it's interesting in the series before Jordan makes a point of, of talking about uh, Russell guarding him and how he always played on the front of his toes. Yes, 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 yes. Where it's like, he's using that not really to talk about the, the 97 finals. That's sort of like letting you know, Hey, in 98, he, that's how he played. 
Um, so if you get a, gave him a head fake, uh, you can change directions. He was gone. Um, and yeah, I agree. Like to me, like the, like they couldn't have called that. Foul. That would have been crazy for them to have called it. Oh, unbel- yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't detract from it for me. Um, you we were talking, uh, you made a comparison the other night on TV, you were watching, uh, the golden state when they played, um, uh, Oklahoma city in their year when they won 72 games. And of course would go on to blow the finals to the Cavs. but there was a game six when they were down three, two in Oklahoma city. And it was one of those games where clay Thompson went off, but it really looked like they were being dominated. And after the game, you think, gosh, there's no way they should have won that. I can't believe they did. Even watching the highlights yesterday in the last dance, I got that same feeling about the Jazz. I'm like, how did you not win this game? You had Pippen couldn't even walk. Uh, I know. And God, you really think they would have won a game seven, right? I mean, it's <laughs> it, it really it really does seem like a miracle in hindsight that the Bulls managed to to last for that one. Yeah, especially from what they show in in, uh, in the show. Yeah, it's like it it does seem amazing that, that the Bulls are able to, to do it. it. I guess it does remind me though, of a lot of like classic games, like the one, the Ray Allen, uh, Miami, he shot shot against the Spurs is another one. Where oh, yeah. It's like, oh, if yeah. you watch a few minutes before that, you're like, Oh, the Spurs got it. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. All right. As a last thing, Brandon, um, I think you and I individually and independently arrived at our, our true hero, uh, of the entire series, and that was Scott Burrell. Um, <laughs> you uh, yes. want to just talk about what makes him such a uh, such a heroic figure? Well, I think the big thing is so uh, a moment from this this documentary that was such a small moment that will stay with me for a long time, and we've already talked about it. Is Charles Oakley and Scottie Pippen, where yes. Charles Oakley has Pippen by the the shirt, and he's just being the worst bully in the world. Mm-hmm. Um. But then, so then there's a lot of talk of, of Jordan uh, being a bully to Burrell. And one thing we were talking about the other day is that for the most part, at least what they show on camera is like, for the most part, it seems like affectionate. It feels like there's there's some like love behind the amount of attention he's he's giving him. Yeah, yeah. But the big thing, and, and Jordan talks about it too, is just like he was too cool a guy. Like no matter what Jordan did, he just like <laughs> smiled and was easy going back. And that's, not a response to bullying that you ever hear of like you usually the response sort of the the response that's lauded is um stepping up to the bully and like like, Kurt, you know, like Kurt did. Yeah, yeah hit the bully exactly yep, right yeah um or cowing to him and, and and as the bad thing and he picked this like interesting choice of his own of being like i'm just not i'm just gonna genuinely not be bothered and, by and, it. and what's so funny is you do hear sometimes go well just pretend it doesn't bother you they feed off your reaction but you can tell when it bothers somebody and they're faking yeah. it. I mean, with him, it does not seem like he's faking it. And, and he's a rookie. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's a rookie. And uh, yeah, I just I texted you before I had finished watching that. You know, I agree with that. You know, there's a lot of affection to it in some weird way, despite the cruelty of it. And then they're in the locker room. Like five minutes later, they're in the locker room, and Jordan says he never wants to see him again uh, after it's over. D- try not to be dog food for once in your life yeah. today. And then, and then he goes, "Hey, man, I'm just I'm going to go to California with you." Burrell says that, yeah. and Jordan's like, "If I ever see you again, I'm going to kick your ass. Uh, I'm going to start a bar fight if you're in a bar." And <laughs> it's so mean. It's so. It's so unrepentantly. Yeah. It's almost like he responded to his niceness by going into his own extreme version of like how mean verbally can I be to this guy? And even then Burrell doesn't, does not crack. It, it is truly remarkable. It seems to, a way, in, in a way it's almost just like jujitsu. Jordan doesn't know how to handle. <laughs> yeah. Where he's just thrown off by how he's responding to this. And so he'll double down on it. And, but it's like ineffective. 
Oh man, so good. Well, Brandon, thank you again. Uh, yeah, this has been really One thing fun. One quick with Scott Burrell yeah. that someone tweeted about that I thought is was hilarious is in that game six against the Jazz, he's like horrible. I forget what the exact stats are, but his plus minus for that game was something like negative seventeen. <laughs> so Jordan did really hate him in some way. I think he probably was like genuinely very frustrated by him. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was awesome, man. It was really fun watching this and talking about it with you, and we'll have to find yeah. an excuse to uh, to talk about some other stuff here in the future. Sounds good. Segment break. All right, that is a wrap for episode number seven of Apocalypse Sports Radio. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. Really, really appreciate it. If you like it, maybe tell a friend, tell some family, tell your worst enemy, and see if, at long last, you can find some common ground. All right, well, you know where to listen to this. Subscribe on iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, all the usual suspects. It's available on all of them. And don't forget the Apocalypse Sports Network. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash apocalypse sports. We have over 100 subscribers now, which is awesome. Uh, join the club. It's a fun movement, and you get those these podcasts plus blog posts plus a general sense that you're doing something really important for the world. All right. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye.